0: hello and welcome to scream scene the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order and then we rank them from best to worst my name's ben
1: and i'm Sarah.
0: thank you so much for listening to us today This is our first episode being recorded in our new place.
1: Yay! (laughs) So if things sound different, that's why. Yeah. And if things don't sound different, that's the magic of audio editing.
0: Sure. Yeah, we're not fully unpacked yet. Yeah. So things might be like a little weird and echoey sounding because we don't have everything, you know...
1: On the walls or anything. Yeah. We're on a more busy street, but in a less loud apartment.
0: Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how the different space affects the sound of the show. We don't really know yet, and it might change in the weeks to come as we kind of move things around in here.
1: And learn how to best record this.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: But thank you everyone for being patient with us, as well as on our Patreon, um, com slash Podcast. People have been very patient as we've been unpacking the bonus audio.
0: Yeah, that's right. Um, I
1: believe we also have a new patron to to thank.
0: That's correct, Sarah. Yes. Uh, Thank you to Jacob Alexander Kimball, who is our new patron.
1: Jacob, you probably get this a lot, but when Ben first said that you started patronizing us, that sounds rude. (laughs) When you first became a patron and Ben said your name to me, I was like, and he didn't kill his wife. Uh, Which is a fugitive reference. Um, But I thought I needed to set that up so people didn't just go like, why did she say that he didn't kill his wife? Did he kill his wife?
0: Yeah, I mean, I feel like (laughs) we've gone down quite a rabbit hole here just so that you could make this reference. (laughs) Okay. But.
1: Listen, as if we don't go down rabbit holes for your tangents.
0: Fair enough. Well, thank you anyway, Jacob, for joining up on our Patreon. You can be like Jacob by going to patreon.com slash screamscenepodcast where you can support the show for as little as a dollar a month.
1: So what are we watching today, Ben?
0: Today, Sarah, we are watching Phantom of the Rue Morgue from 1954, directed by Roy Delruth.
1: Interesting. So I'm guessing by the title that this is a sequel... Two Murders in the Rue Morgue?
0: Remake, actually. Remake. Yeah. Ooh, I don't really know okay. why we've changed the title to Phantom of the Rue Morgue, because there's no... It's not like a mashup of Rue Morgue and Phantom of the Opera. Okay. Um, But I guess we're fooling people into thinking it's a new story? I am I don't really know.
1: I mean, I would not be surprised if they're wanting to distance themselves a little bit, because... Universal's Murders in the Rue Morgue from 1932
0: did not do well. It was 20 years ago. So, because it's a remake, it's based on the same source material as the earlier Murders in the Rue Morgue, uh, which is the Edgar Allan Poe short story, Murders in the Rue Morgue. Yeah. It's been a while since we've had a Poe adaptation.
1: Yeah, I don't remember the last time I won't go into too much detail about Edgar Allan Poe because enough has been said about him.
0: Yeah, I mean, we've covered him a few times on a few different episodes.
1: Um, I will mention that he married his 13-year-old cousin when he was 30-whatever years old, and uh, that's all I have to say about that. Um, but but you, you do
0: manage to say it every time.
1: Yes, I feel like it's a sticking point. Um But if you want to learn more about Edgar Allan Poe, um, you can listen to our original episode on Murders in the Rue Morgue, episode 30. That was a long time ago. Yeah, we're on episode 169. Nice. Um, So many episodes ago. Yes. Yeah. Murders in the Rue Morgue was written and published in 1841 in Graham's Magazine, which was kind of like a, a fancier magazine than what Poe would normally publish. So you might be surprised to hear that it's not so much a horror short story as it is more of a detective short story.
0: Yes. It's sort of considered one of the first, like, detective short stories, right?
1: Yeah. So it features C. Auguste Dupin, who is a detective that Poe would write a couple of other short stories about. Uh, amateur detective. Yeah. He's not actually a detective.
0: Right. It's not his day job. Sure. You didn't, I mean...
1: I just thought it would be good to clarify that. Yeah. Okay. He's not Uh, Will Graham.
0: Well, most, like, fictional detectives were amateur detectives until, like, later in the, like, second half of the 20th century, really. Sure. Yeah. So,
1: it's about a double murder on the fictional street Rue Morgue in Paris. Uh, Rue Morgue being, like, Morgue Street.
0: Yeah, Death Street.
1: Death Street. The story goes with the double murder... The mother is found dead in the garden with many broken bones and a nearly completely severed head, like nearly headless Nick from Harry Potter. Mm -hmm. And the daughter has been strangled and stuffed up a chimney in their fourth floor room, which had been locked from the inside. Mm -hmm. So kind of a a mystery going on here. Found at the scene is a bloody straight razor some gray tufts of hair, two bags of gold coins, and witnesses um, overheard two different voices. One was a man speaking French, and then the other was speaking a language that no one is really able to confirm which language it was. Now, Dupont is, like I said, like an amateur detective, and he's super into analytical reasoning, and he's You know, sitting down with our narrator, who you might say is a Watson type, and they're reading the newspaper. And that's when they learn about this double murder and that um, a friend of DuPont's, who is a bank clerk, has been arrested for the murder, even though he has no connection to the murder besides being the bank clerk who gave the two women these two bags of coins. So DuPont's like, all right, I'm going to get involved here, going to clear my friend's name. Through analytical reasoning, he deduces that whoever committed this crime came in through the window. Makes sense. Clearly no robbery was committed because the gold coins were still there. And he figures out that these gray tufts of hair are not human, but from an orangutan. So he puts out a newspaper ad asking, Hey, has anyone lost an orangutan recently? (laughs) Um, that leads them to a sailor who goes, Hey, I I lost an orangutan recently. (laughs) (laughs) So it turns out this orangutan was super interested in mimicking human behavior. And one night, the sailor caught the orangutan trying to shave like a man. And the orangutan was so embarrassed and ashamed, he ran off into the night with the razor blade um, and up to this bedroom. He kind of unintentionally murders the mom by, like, cutting off her head with the razor blade, um, strangling the daughter, and then having the brute strength to shove her up the chimney. And then the sailor followed him, climbed up the the pole to get to the fourth floor apartment, and was like, orangutan, what are you doing? And the orangutan was like, shit, and, like, threw the mom out the window and escaped. So the sailor's like, yeah, that's that's my orangutan, found him, and I sold him, no worries. So Dupont is like, alright, well, police officers, this is the story, they released the bank clerk, the police are like, here, let's not talk about this ever again, because this is fucking ridiculous. And it's sort of a happy ending, I guess? Yeah. Because the murder's solved and the orangutan is sold. Yeah, I mean it's like The Sailor faces no consequences.
0: It's it's a it's a weird story because it it's like the reverse of Occam's razor, where like it's the most complicated solution you could possibly have to yeah. the mystery. Yeah. Yeah.
1: But that's the short story. It's fairly well received.
0: Mm-hmm. It, very famous, like influential.
1: Yeah. It had a few different adaptations. One of the earliest adaptations actually taking that plot and putting Sherlock Holmes in it. Mm. Which is funny because Sherlock Holmes came after this yeah, story. Yeah, he's
0: kind of a, inspired by Dupont almost as a character.
1: Yeah, a little bit. But the first full-length adaptation was Universal's 1932 film of the same name, directed by Robert Flory and starring Bella Lugosi. And that film is infamous for ruining both men's careers. Yes, as well as creating an awkward sticking point on the Scream Scene list of um, every horror movie ever made up to this point, it is currently ranked at number 73.
0: Yeah, it's both too much horror and not horror enough.
1: Yes, yeah. The way I would kind of describe it is that it's a bit ahead of its time with regards to its horror elements, um, but it's kind of stuck in the mud of the audience's expectations at the time, including, like, not really being ready for that kind of horror, mm-hmm. as well as not really being ready for some of the subject matter that mm-hmm. the film invokes, um, from something as seemingly innocuous as human evolution to sex work.
0: And bestiality. Some, like, weird...
1: So, yeah, some weird bestiality. Mm-hmm. So to try to balance the tone of the movie, the film has almost a too light and pastoral uh, element to it um, with some odd comedic timing and intensely dark visuals and subject matter. So it's a complete mishmash of... It's got tone problems. It's Well, that's putting it lightly. Mm-hmm. It does stray from the short story, so yeah. I'm going to give a bit of a synopsis here.
0: Yeah, it's like loosely inspired.
1: Yeah. So it's set in Paris 1845, which would be like four-ish years after Poe would publish the short story in America.
0: Yeah, so it's that's a little weird.
1: I mean, it's kind of neat. You know, I, I think it's neat. Anyways, Bella Lugosi plays Dr. Miracle and we're introduced to Dr. Miracle as he abducts a young woman um, who uh, the censors don't want you to know is a sex worker and he's going to abduct her to try to create a mate for his ape, Eric. Um, he has a sideshow where he meets our protagonists, the medical student slash d- detective Pierre Dupont, his fiance Camille, and their friends Paul and Magnette. Miracle and Eric are both entranced by Camille so she's now Miracle's next target. They steal her bonnet and then follow her home in order to get her address. Meanwhile, a lot of, like, women's bodies are showing up in the Seine River. And Dupont begins examining these women's bodies and finds a foreign substance in their blood. And that's kind of taken to be the cause of death. They clearly didn't drown. They died before they hit the water. Meanwhile... Eric, the ape, is sent to kidnap Camille. In the midst of that kidnapping, Camille's mother gets strangled and stuffed up a chimney, and um, some ape fur is left behind at the scene. Now, DuPont is first suspected by the police when they arrive, but when clues don't really add up, namely the ape hair and um, witnesses hearing like a foreign language and no one can agree on what kind of language it was, um, Dupont is released and he takes the police to Miracle's house. Now, in the meantime, Eric has turned on Miracle, uh, and murders him. Um, he grabs Camille just as the police arrive and Dupont has a, uh, chase scene on the Paris rup- rooftops chasing after Eric. Eventually Eric is shot and he himself falls into the river sign and Camille is saved by Dupont. Yeah. So, what's kind of not mentioned in there are the many meandering moments into that pastoral light tone I mentioned. I quickly touched on the comedic moment of um, the three neighbors saying, like, what language they heard.
0: Yeah, but that's from the short story, at least.
1: I don't believe it's played for laughs in the short
0: story. No, it's played for laughs in the movie, for sure.
1: So... As you would hear more in the actual episode, episode 30, if you wanted to get more of the nitty-gritty details, um, there were many problems with production in the movie. Um, They were given, like, less and less money, and then when Frankenstein was a hit, Universal was like, oh shit, let's put some money into Murders in the Rue Morgue, so suddenly they had a ton of money, so they did a ton of reshoots. There were also a lot of problems with censors, with a lot of stuff being cut, namely um, the sex workers, as I mentioned, as well as a conversation about evolution when Miracle is first introduced with Eric at the sideshow. One reviewer described it as being sexed up to the limit, um, and I think that's a good way to describe like some of the more racy and... Um, also a little bit horrific moments of just like being a little too intense for the time. Mm -hmm. Um, But because they had money being pumped in, once they were in post-production, they started doing these reshoots, kind of changing the story during the production when they got more money. So it was just kind of a whole mess. And as I said, it, uh, was kind of the beginning of the end for uh, the careers of Bella Lugosi and Robert Flory, at least at Universal.
0: Yeah, because it was this movie that, like, was, you know, something that they weren't sure was going to work. Then, like, put a bunch of money into and were expecting to be a hit. And then, like, didn't work. And so it was, you know, easier to say, well, it's Lugosi and Flory's fault than, well, we fucked around and reshot and re-edited this so many ways that it, like barely holds together as a story. Yeah. The crux of the horror in it was, like, this idea that Morocco was going to be, like, breeding these women with his, like, ape monster, right?
1: Yeah, and the reason he goes for Camille rather than these sex workers is because of tainted blood.
0: Yeah, the idea that the, the sex workers' blood isn't pure enough because of, like...
1: Venereal diseases? Yeah, exactly. Which, okay... Uh, But anyway, so that's the 1932 adaptation.
0: Mm -hmm. So this version, Phantom of the Room Org, comes to us from Warner Brothers. Okay. This is a movie that exists solely because of the immense success of House of Wax the year before. Sure. This was produced as the follow-up to that film. And so it was designed to emulate as many elements of House of Wax as possible. Uh, So it's shot in natural vision 3d okay it's shot in warner color which is that um eastman color printed to technicolor uh format it is a remake of an early 1930s horror film with a period setting sure uh so it's it's really trying to check as many boxes from house of wax as possible to create like you know another one of those
1: Almost as if they don't really know why House of Wax was successful.
0: Mm-hmm. Cinematographer Jay Peverell Marley was retained from House of Wax, as was composer David Buttolf. Unfortunately for Warner Brothers, King of the Bees producer Brian Foy had jumped ship following the success of House of Wax for Columbia Pictures, taking star Vincent Price and writer Crane Wilbur with him for the production of a rival 3D period horror movie, The Mad Magician.
1: Okay. I assume we will be watching that at some point?
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think we're going to be watching it next week, but I'm not sure. (laughs) To replace Foy as producer, Warners brought on longtime studio employee Henry Blanc. Blanc was born in 1901 in Berlin as Heinz Blanca and began his career as a film cutter in 1920. He became assistant to Ernst Lubitsch, and that would lead to his career sort of taking off uh, with work as an assistant director, then as production manager on Fritz Lang's Metropolis, nice. and then producer of nine German films before emigrating to the United States. He became production supervisor at Warner Brothers and worked for the studio over 25 years. Wow. By 1953, He was one of only three producers still working for Warner Brothers under contract. Films he produced include Mystery of the Wax Museum, A Midsummer Night's Dream, The Life of Emile Zola, The Adventures of Robin Hood, the 1941 version of The Maltese Falcon, The Treasure of Sierra Madre, and The Fountainhead. Wow. Yeah, he's got uh, quite a...
1: uh, A resume. Yeah.
0: The screenplay is the work of writers Harold Medford and James R. Webb. Webb had written short stories for national magazines before becoming a screenwriter, initially at Republic Pictures and then later at Warner Brothers After the War. His most notable credits as a writer, however, would come way after this movie with his scripts for Cape Fear and How the West Was Won in 1962. uh, And he would win an Oscar for How the West Was Won.
1: We'll eventually be watching Cape Fear, huh?
0: I think so, yeah. Yeah, cool. To direct, veteran director Roy Delruth was brought on. Delruth had a career going back to 1915 in Hollywood, uh, when he started as a writer. In the early 1920s, he began directing short films with his first feature film in
1: 1925.
0: Wow. He directed the lost mansion murder mystery film The Terror in 1928 and he also directed a series of early two-strip Technicolor musicals for Warner Brothers in the late 1920s and early 1930s. He directed the original 1931 version of The Maltese Falcon.
1: Which is pretty dope, by the way. Yeah,
0: it's really cool if you haven't seen it. Uh, And he followed that up with a number of the gritty urban dramas that Warner Brothers was known for in the 1930s. He directed more upbeat musicals for Warner's in the 1940s, And from 1932 to 1941, he was the second highest paid director in Hollywood. Good for him. By 1953, his career had kind of wound down. He was 61 years old when he made this movie. And after Phantom of the Room Morgue, he would move to directing on television.
1: Sure. Kind of um, a less hectic schedule,
0: I'm assuming. Um, not really in the 1950s, because most television (laughs) was live. Sure. The film's star is acclaimed character actor Karl Malden. He was born Mladen Jorge Sekulovic in Chicago in 1912 to a Serbian father and Czech mother. He participated in drama and sports through his school years and changed his name at age 22 for the first theatrical company that he worked for, uh, which was a move he always regretted. His acting career was interrupted by World War II, but in the late 1940s, he began appearing on stage with Marlon Brando and attracting the attention of director Ilya Kazan. He began appearing on film in the 1950s, and in 1951, he played Mitch in Kazan's adaptation of A Streetcar Named Desire mm. opposite Marlon Brando and Vivian Lee. He won the Oscar for Best Supporting Actor for that film and would earn a second Oscar nomination for Best Supporting Actor in 1954 for his role in On the Waterfront.
1: So that's the same year as this? Yes. That's fun. <laughs> two very different movies. Yeah.
0: Some of his later films include Pollyanna, Birdman of Alcatraz, How the West Was Won, and Patton.
1: Did he play Patton?
0: No. That okay. was George C. Scott. He plays um, like Patton's like number two man. Okay. From 1972 to 1977, he was the lead on the police procedural TV series Streets of San Francisco. And he passed away in 2009 at age 97.
1: Wow.
0: Yeah. His co-star is actress Patricia Medina, a Spanish-English actress best remembered today for her role in Orson Welles' 1955 film Mr. Arkadin*. Okay. But she spent most of her career acting in, like, period costume dramas. She was married to Joseph Cotton from 1960 to his death in 1994. Nice. And she passed away in 2012 at age 92.
1: Cool. Good for her, Joseph Cotton's quite a catch.
0: (laughs) In a very small role in this film is Merv Griffin, who most boomers listening to the show would recognize. At the time, he was a nightclub singer who was most famous for the song I've Got a Lovely Bunch of Coconuts.
1: Oh, no. Uh,
0: He was discovered by Doris Day and brought to Hollywood, where he appeared in some films in the early 1950s, including So This Is Love in 1953, where he shared the first open-mouth kiss on film since the institution of the production code. Soon after this movie, however, Griffin gave up on movies. He found the entire, like, movie-making process to be way too stressful, (laughs) and he became a game show host from 1958 to 1962, hosting the show Play Your Hunch, which then led to him getting his own daytime talk show, The Merv Griffin Show, which aired from 1962 to
1: 1986.
0: Wow. Yeah, The Merv Griffin Show was a big deal. In 1964... He founded his own production company, Merv Griffin Enterprises, and through that he created and produced the game show Jeopardy,
1: Oh, uh, for which
0: he also composed the theme music, Uh, and then he also created and produced Wheel of Fortune, starting in 1975. Dang. He passed away in 2007 at age 82. Wow. Very wealthy when he passed away. Well,
1: clearly. You know, when you're on the game shows, if the people don't win, you get all their stuff.
0: No, that's not how that works. But he did create (laughs) Jeopardy and Wheel of Fortune. Yeah. Now, the gorilla in this film is played by Charles Gamora, who had played the gorilla in the original film back in 1932. Really? Yeah. Now, Gamora was not working as much in the 1950s. Demand for gorilla suit actors had kind of gone down. Uh, but his gorilla suits themselves had been much upgraded in the intervening years. Um, the suit being used in this film has improved expressiveness, more realistic weight and muscles. So I'm kind of looking forward to seeing it.
1: Yeah, that'll be really interesting. I just assumed it was going to be Crush Corrigan.
0: Yeah, no, uh, it's it's Charles Gemra uh, playing the gorilla, reprising his role as the gorilla from the original film.
1: And given that it's a different studio, that maybe explains why they changed it to Phantom in the Rue Morg, mm. rather than Murders. But when we watched House of Wax, we did notice a few similarities to, like, a little bit of a Phantom of the Opera premise. Mm. So maybe that's also what, where they came in from, especially if they're wanting to kind of recreate that feeling
0: from House of Wax. For sure. The advertising for the film also, um, like doesn't reveal the gorilla, like it's a mystery who's committing the murders. Oh, well, that that fits. Yeah. Phantom of the Rue Morgue was released in 3D on March 27th, 1954. The film made $1.45 million at the box office, but it received mixed reviews from critics, who found it old-fashioned, derivative, and overly lurid.
1: Overly lurid?
0: Yeah, too violent.
1: Okay, well, that bodes well.
0: The... They didn't like House of Wax either.
1: <laughs> the um, old fashionedness. I'm kind of already expecting, just given like the behind the scenes you gave about like the producer, the director mm-hmm. having like these very long CVs. But I'm still pretty excited to watch this now. I thought it was just going to be like a
0: whatever, but this sounds actually pretty interesting. What's interesting is that today the movie isn't really available on home video. Uh, it was released on VHS. Oh, but no real, like, DVD or Blu-ray releases. Um, it's also really hard to find streaming. Uh, I think in the United States you can watch it on Amazon Prime, but not really in Canada. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's kind of hard to find these days. Um, but if you hunt around, you can find some places where it's been uploaded online. Um, but, yeah, it, it hasn't gotten the, like, love and care that House of Wax has gotten over the years.
1: Yeah, well, we'll watch it and see if that is purposeful. Right. Or if it's a lost classic. Yeah. <laughs> well, folks, hopefully you can watch along. You're going to hear a brief musical interlude. And when we come back, we will discuss Phantom of the Rue Morgue from 1954, directed by Roy Delruth.
0: See you on the other side, everybody.
1: Welcome back to Scream Scene. We just finished watching Phantom of the Rue Morgue from 1954, directed by Roy Delruth. Ben, what did you think of this?
0: I had a lot of fun watching this.
1: I also had a lot of fun. Um, Sometimes just kind of like being a little sassy at the screen. (laughs) But yeah, it was enjoyable.
0: It's interesting to see, like, this isn't, strictly speaking, I would say, an adaptation of the Edgar Allan Poe short story, Murders in the Room Morgue, in the sense that I think you need the, like, 1932 movie version as, like, a necessary middle step to kind of understand how we get here. Because there's so many aspects of this movie that, like, would just seem to come out of nowhere if you were going right from one to the other.
1: I would say inspired by Mm -hmm. rather than adapted from.
0: It's definitely... Like interesting to see that um, mutation that evolution of adaptation where we 're not necessarily like drawing upon the original source material we're sort of drawing on each iteration that comes after,
1: yeah, almost like the thirty two version is a missing link
0: right, yeah, exactly, yes, but the issues of like evolution and stuff aren't really what this movie's going for
1: the movie does away with the idea of the ape being a missing link or anything like that, like the th- in the 32 version. In this one, he's just an ape, um, and it's more about psychology and training animals.
0: Yeah, it's about the psychology of violence.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: So let's let's talk about the story.
1: Sure. A murder!
0: In the Rue Morgue!
1: In the Rue Morgue! Those are the first bits of dialogue we get... From the movie. At the crime scene, a scarf of a sailor from the Maltese port is found, and it seems to be a very, very brutal murder. Um there's blood and crashed furniture. It's pretty shocking. But don't worry, Inspector Bernard is on the case. And he says, Well, might take another murder for us to figure this one out.
0: Yeah, when you say don't worry, Inspector Bernard is on the case, what you should be doing is worrying. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, Inspector Bernard's take on this murder is, Oh, ah, well, I know? We'll see. If the killer strikes again, maybe we'll have more evidence.
1: Yeah. Three months later, Professor Paul Dupont is uh, out with his new fiancée, Jeanette, their uh, friend Camille, and boyfriend Georges. And they are at a cabaret show. Um, so at least Phantom of the Rue Morgue there's a better way of integrating the flying kicks at your face in 3D than um, <laughs> House of Wax. Yes. And this is quite a cabaret show because there's a little bit of a sideshow act where a guy is throwing knives at a woman on like the stage.
0: Yeah, yeah, you know.
1: Like a, a knife-throwing act. Yeah,
0: where the knives are coming right at you.
1: <laughs> now we see that um, there's some tension between... The knife thrower, and the knife throwee, <laughs> the target, because they're like fighting before they go on stage, and there's a lot of tension as the knives are being thrown. Everyone's like, "Oh man, he's really mad. What if, what if he kills her?" What they've been arguing about uh, is the girl, who's, like again these guy these people's names I didn't catch.
0: Yvonne. Yvonne. Mm-hmm. Okay,
1: there's a lot of women.
0: Yep, because they just have kind to of die. thrown away. Yeah. Yep.
1: So Yvonne, the knife-throwery, uh, who, who is the target, um, she has a new bow. And she has a fancy new bracelet from this bow that has like little bells that jingle. And the knife-thrower, I believe his name is Renee, he's upset about this because they're supposed to be together or something like that. Um, but she's like, no, go away. And she goes out to go home. When, when she reaches her house, she is attacked and brutally murdered. Inspector Bernard is also on this case, and Renee is the first suspect. Now, we do get some questionable, like, oh, I can tell you're a criminal because you don't have earlobes."
0: Yeah, Inspector Bernard uh, subscribes to the physiognomy uh, style of criminology that was popular in, like, the 19th century, where you can tell a criminal by, like, the shape of his skull and, like, his physical characteristics, which is meant to clue you in on the fact that Inspector Bernard is, like, not good at this right, is, like, not supposed to be a good detective. Yeah.
1: But turns out Renee has an alibi, so the police follow up on some of Yvonne's bows. I guess she had a bit of a collection going on mm-hmm. and had their, like, photos, their signed photos from your lover, this person and that person. One of these people turns out to be Georges. So this leads Inspector Bernard to go talk to Professor Dupont and uh, question George. Camille is pretty upset, finding out that her boyfriend's been two-timing her, basically. Right. Um, now, George has an alibi. They went out for drinking after the cabaret, um, and, you know, Dupont was there, the girls were there, as well as a, another party, um, a Dr. Murray, who comes in and says, yes, Inspector, I can vouch for their alibis. And yeah, so this is how we meet Dr. Murray, who becomes a bit more of an important character later on. Um, When he is introduced here, we get a little bit of some insight as to what his research is, um, basically about the psychology of the animal instinct to kill or inflict violence. Um, He's trained these mice to not eat unless they hear a little bell, and he talks about how one mouse, he never rang the bell until so the mouse went crazy and killed its fellow mice
0: yeah his concept is that um like everything has the capacity for like a killer instinct and like violence and murder but you know we as humans like impose like order and like social laws and and mores on each other to like control our behavior but that if like sufficiently like, pushed, will become, like, violent and murderous again, despite that. Mm -hmm. And so his evidence here is that, like, he created this social order with these mice, and then he intentionally fucked around with, like, whether food would come at the bell or not after training them that way, in order to, like, intentionally drive this one mouse insane to, like, prove that, like, this trained mouse could be rendered psychopathic, basically.
1: (laughs) Then there's another murder! Um, this woman, uh, she's a model, she uh, also has a jingly jingly bell bracelet, and um, the artist uh, makes a point of being like, I know you're going around seeing other guys because you got this fancy bracelet and this cameo brooch that the camera really zooms in on to make sure you pay attention to, hey, this cameo brooch, and she's like, I'm just modeling for you, leave me alone. You're creep. But then she's attacked and murdered. Um, so the police, they find, you know, the bracelet, the body, whatever, and they also find the brooch that I mentioned. They trace this cameo brooch back to Professor Dupont um, because of like an inscription or whatever. Now, Dupont says that that was actually stolen. I, I don't know how it got to this model. The inspector's like, yeah, sure you're saying that right now, because we're in front of your fiancé, but I'm sure that you actually just gave this to this woman. Now, when the inspector goes to question DuPont about the murdered model, he arrives at the university just in time for Dr. Marais guest lecture. Mm-hmm. And this is where we get a bit more insight as to his analysis around the psychology of violence. And we also get introduced to this subject of his named Marie, her husband left her. So she went insane, but rather than commit violence, she became mute and just kind of retreated internally away from the world. Um, and he's like, see, this is what happens when like you're faced with that urge to do violence and you don't know what to do about it, you know, because the morality is to not kill. So she was like, does not compute. Yeah. Shut down, shut
0: down. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah.
1: Now, DuPont, like I said, he can't really explain how the brooch got to the model. He says it was stolen, and we're kind of led to believe that he's telling the truth. Because he says, you know, this is weird. It's almost like someone's like intentionally targeting me, but I don't know what to do about that. That night... um, Camille, who lives at the same boarding house as DuPont and was the girlfriend to Georges, who Mm -hmm. we mentioned a while back. Anyways, so she's returning home and she has a jangly bell bracelet. She goes to her room and we see that DuPont sees that she's returning. And, you know, he's, he's at the mirror shaving and then suddenly he hears screams coming from her apartment. So he goes and rushes. And tries to follow this figure who seems to have attacked Camille, and we get a little bit of a Paris rooftop chase.
0: Yeah, with like very expressionistic looking rooftops, and yeah. I kind of think that this scene is meant as like an homage to the, the original 32? movie. Yeah, yeah, which also had like
1: a rooftop chase. Yes,
0: and very like expressionistic sets.
1: Um, so Dupont is trying to chase this suspect. Um, But police are on scene and they actually grab Dupont as the suspect. They do a little bit of investigation in Camille's room. And um, it's unfortunate that Dupont keeps going like, oh, well, maybe the guy came in through this window. See, it looks like it's locked. But if you hit this latch, suddenly it opens. And the inspector's like, huh, funny that you would notice that.
0: Yeah. This murder is probably like, I mean, all of the murders have elements from the short story, but this one's the, like, closest because it's the locked room, no way in or out. Uh, Camille's body is found stuffed up the chimney. But yeah, this is where we have, like, oh, but, you know, how could someone have the strength to stuff a lady up a, a chimney? And, you know, the, oh, well, what language was the the perpetrator speaking? I thought it sounded like Italian, no Spanish, no German. Like, this is where all those details kind of start happening.
1: And the inspector's like, ah... Dupont, don't you know all of those three languages? <laughs> and Dupont's like, damn it, if only I wasn't so smart.
0: <laughs> yeah, unfortunately a lot of evidence starts pointing at Dupont, that's for sure.
1: So he's arrested. They do take him to the studio where the model was murdered to kind of get a feel for like what he happens to see there. Um, because like the police are really trying to pin this on Dupont. Mm-hmm. And Dupont's trying to clear his name. At the studio where the model was murdered the perpetrator had jumped through like a skylight and it, they it leaves like a perfect like you know like looney tunes when someone runs through a wall and it's like the perfect cut out of their body that's what it fucking looks like anyway so they go up onto the roof to be like well how did this perpetrator get in and get out because there's no way up to this roof.
0: yeah and there's no like way that you could easily escape down to, like, the street or, or mm-hmm. anything else, right? And this has been, like, a big sticking point for them with all the murders, is, like, that the criminal would have to be, like, some sort of super agile, like, person in order to, like, get in and out of these places.
1: Yeah. And the inspector goes, see, DuPont, I know how you escaped. You hopped from awning to awning. And by hopped, I mean, like, swung. Because he, <laughs> the inspector went to the circus, and we see this, he goes to the circus... Gets a trapeze person, uh, one of the flying zucchinis, yeah. as is in the credits, um, to demonstrate that. See, you could like swing from one awning on to the other, except for this last one, where the trapeze artist tries to make the jump, and he falls short. And yeah. Dupont's like, "See, like, there's no way I could do this. I'm just a professor. Like, I'm not athletic like this. But no human has the uh, arm span to make that last jump." And the inspector's like, hmm, you would say that, wouldn't you? And then Dupont's like, no, human. Inspector, what if it wasn't human? And the inspector's like, what the fuck are you talking about, <laughs> dude? Dupont's like, would need like a ton of strength. Would need that long of an arm span. Would be speaking a language that no one is really able to identify. Uh, apes do all of this. It's an ape. And the inspector's like, yeah, buddy, okay, take him, yeah. take him to the truck. Get him out of here. Yeah,
0: take him away, boys.
1: <laughs> and then we get the intermission, because as been explained in the House of Wax episode, with 3D film at this time, you, you needed to have an intermission regardless of the length of the movie. Yeah. When we come back, we see a character who, who has been introduced to us, But I have not introduced yet. This guy's name is Jacques. He is Dr. Murray's animal handler. And he's a one-eyed, grumpy-looking sailor with some Oliver Reed energy of, like, sort of attractive from certain angles. And then other angles, you're like, "Mm, hmm, you would be an unhealthy option for (laughs) me.
0: (laughs) Oliver Reed from, from the film Oliver pretty specifically is what you're, what you're thinking of. But yeah, this is
1: Oliver Reed in general. I think he just has that aura of like handsome, but you're not a wise choice.
0: (laughs) He's got like an eye patch because his like eye was like gouged out. And, um, he's played by Anthony Caruso who made like a career of playing like bit villain roles on TV for years. Uh, he was, um, Bella Oxmix the lead gangster on the planet of gangsters in the second season Star Trek episode of Piece of the Action.
1: (laughs) So Jacques, when we come back from the intermission, he's at a bar, like a sailor bar, and a sailor's like, Oh, Jacques, my old buddy, like, haven't seen you in forever. Remember when we went to Malta and got these matching scarves that the audience would recognize from that first murder? (laughs) And you had that
0: pet ape.
1: You had that pet ape, that like gouged out your <laughs> eye and like, how has it been Jacques? I haven't seen you in forever. Um, whatever happened to that ape that ran off that one time? And Jacques's like, buddy, shut the fuck up. How, how let, let's go, uh, let's go take a long walk off for a short dock.
0: Huh?
1: <laughs> and he, so he murders this guy. <laughs> Speaking of Dr. Murray, he's been getting pretty close to Jeanette. Now that DuPont is in jail, he's like, Jeanette, Come to my zoo, see my animals. Jeanette, come into my house. Isn't it nice, Jeanette? Come into my creepy room where my dead wife, who committed suicide, uh, used to love to, like, stay locked inside with bars on the windows.
0: <laughs> yeah, he's... I think he's offering Jeanette, like, a research assistant position. But, yeah, there's a lot of, like, Oh, Jeanette, I would never show anyone my creepy dead wife's room or tell anyone about her, like, distressing suicide... Except you.
1: It's creepy as fuck.
0: I'd also never show anyone what I have locked away in this dungeon. Except (laughs) you.
1: Yeah, he takes Jeanette to an area in the zoo that he's like, no one's allowed in here, not even like the zoo people. Um, And it's like an underground dungeon where he keeps his ape named Sultan. And we see Jacques down here kind of teasing Sultan with a ball. So Jeanette meets the ape... And the ape's like, ooh, lady. <laughs> it's a lady. Jeanette's kind of like nervous about it, but whatever. And so she goes back to the house. And Dr. Murray and Jacques talk. Dr. Murray's like, did you see how Jeanette didn't have any fear? She's the one for me. And Jacques is like, yeah, but you said that about all the rest. <laughs> I was wrong those times, this time. This time she has the courage. And it's like, okay, so Dr. Murray somehow is responsible for all those other women being killed or something.
0: Yeah, you start to put the pieces together at this point. I mean, Murray's also like, hey, Jacques, shut up. Yeah. I'm the reason you're not in prison from that time that Sultan got away from you and killed that woman in the Rue Morgue three months ago. Yeah, exactly. Jacques's like, if I had just gone to the police then and been like, hey, it was an accident, it would be fine. But instead I listened to you, and now <laughs> we run around killing women with my ape pet.
1: And Jacques is pretty jealous that Sultan seems to like anyone except him.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so after Dr. Murray leaves, Jacques starts, like, whipping Sultan. Yeah. Back at the house, Dr. Murray comes to Jeanette, who let herself back into the dead wife's room. And he confesses his love for Jeanette. Uh, Jeanette, you're, you have the strength to to, to be with me and, and continue with my research and everything, and you're everything to me, and
0: blah, 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 blah. I mean, he goes to kiss her. This is, you know, listen. I'm not here to give advice to psychopaths. Mm-hmm. But if I was... Don't go to, like, make out with the girl whose, um, spoiler alert, boyfriend you set up for murder and you've, like, (laughs) maneuvered into, like, taking a job with you so you can, like, get her to fall in love with you. Like, don't go and make your move with the full kiss and everything on, like, day one of that plan. like, right? at least do it the day after you tell her about your dead wife. Right, like, like let her work for you for a while and, like, get to know you and grow dependent on you because DuPont's, like, in prison and, like, you know what I mean? Like, like listen, I'm not coming out in favor of, like, grooming. <laughs> grooming is bad, but there is, like, a reason that psychopathic abusers do it, and it's because you can't just kiss the girl on the first day of meeting her. Yeah. So this goes poorly for him.
1: Jeanette rejects him. Uh, she's like, you're, you're scaring me. And she, she somehow between like his behavior here. And I think she says the way you touched me just now, she can tell that he hates women. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Jeanette puts together that, ah, the bars on the window and everything here, your wife was afraid of you. And that's why she committed suicide. And Dr. Murray is like, you're like all the rest. Explains that like, I have no blood on my hands. I'm perfectly sane. By the way, here's this bracelet that has jingly bells on it. <laughs> I'm going to lock you in here now. Bye.
0: Yeah, so Murray like, felt rejected by his wife because she was afraid of him. So then she killed herself. He went, you know. More crazy. M- more crazy. Yeah, I don't know how crazy he was before, but, like, definitely crazy after. And thinks that the thing that's been preventing him from being happy with women is that they aren't, like, courageous enough to be with him because they all seem to be afraid of him and that's like he takes that as rejection or whatever and it's like buddy buddy but um so every woman who's been like
1: yeah no thanks bud he gives them a jingly bracelet and hearing the bell compels sultan
0: to go kill yes and so in marae's mind like he's not a murderer and hasn't been killing them and thus hasn't like had the social ethics versus killer instinct like conflict in him that would drive him insane in his mind because, like, he's getting an ape to kill for him. It's, It's, you know, he's standing there with his killer ape and his elaborate Pavlovian murder scheme and saying, like, <laughs> would an insane person do all this?
1: <laughs> yes. <laughs> so he goes to go get his killing ape. That implies he has, like, other apes. He goes and gets his single only ape that kills for him. right? And turns out Sultan has escaped. Um, He broke out of the bars, killed Jacques, Mm -hmm. and is on the loose. He's running around town, and we see that the ape almost seems to have like an instinctual hatred of women. Um, He goes and he destroys this female mannequin, and then when the dressmaker happens upon it, she's screaming and he kills her. Dr. Marie catches up with the ape and manages to get Sultan... Down into the sewers to get him back to the zoo, unseen. Meanwhile, Dupont is at the police station. He's managed to get an audience with the inspector by saying that he'll confess, but it was really just to get an audience. Mm -hmm. Um, And as he's trying to convince the inspector that, like, no, I'm not guilty, he sees the bunch of bell bracelets, and he puts two and two together, and he's like, oh... It's Dr. Murray who seems to have trained an ape to kill based on bell response. And the inspector's like, again with this ape? What? Take him away! Jeez Louise! Just then, a police officer comes in and he's like, Inspector, there's been another murder the exact same way as all the others. And the inspector's like, that's impossible. DuPont's right here. And then a couple come in and they're like police we saw an ape on the streets and then the inspector's like huh that's odd and then um someone who uh was like cleaning gaslight lamps is like yeah and i saw the ape with a man escape through the sewers just like everyone coming in one after another yeah. and the inspector's like well well okay i guess we got to go arrest dr murray then <laughs> so they go to the zoo and um dr murray finally has sultan The ape goes to attack Jeanette. She faints. And Sultan goes, his mind, his thought process is no longer kill, but rather be like King Kong and grab the girl and just kidnap her. Right, and and climb climb. to the tallest building around.
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: The ape is carrying Jeanette um, around through the zoo. Dr. Murray is chasing him to be like, no, you need to kill this girl. And then the police are chasing both of them to be like, Dr. Murray, stop. Ape, put down that girl. So, the climb. Well, this whole thing has been the climax. But the climax of the climax is that um, Sultan is up a tree holding Jeanette, uh, who is unconscious. And they have, like, a um, trampoline thing to catch her body. And they're like, Dr. Murray, order the ape to let her go. And Dr. Murray is like, Sultan! Sultan! Looks around. Kill! Kill! <laughs> And so Sultan like, goes to throw the body, goes to throw Jeanette, and they catch her, luckily. So she's fine. And um, the police are shooting Sultan, and Sultan's like, bullets can't harm me, I'm an ape. Except now I'm going to fall and land specifically on Dr. Murray. Be alive enough to maul him to death. So they both die. And Jeanette is fine. Yes. And DuPont is fine.
0: And Jeanette and DuPont get married. Yes. And presumably Inspector Bernard gets all the credit for solving this wacky series of murders.
1: (laughs) Yeah, the last bit is uh, the inspector taking um, the jingly bracelet and putting it in a drawer marked, Murders in the Rue (laughs) Morgue. So, the film's pretty exciting. There's a lot going on. Yes. It felt a little complicated to try to explain in the synopsis form, uh, mainly because a lot of stuff happens. A lot of murders happen. Yes. I think it's one of the more violent movies we've seen in a while. Oh,
0: undoubtedly. Most of the violence in this movie happens on screen. In order to keep the identity of the murderer a secret, you don't necessarily see the murders per se, but like...
1: You see the aftermath.
0: Yes. And it's always like these rooms are just completely trashed. The bodies of the victims are like sprawled across the ground, like all legs akimbo. There's blood everywhere
1: yeah um camille like she kind of falls out of the chimney
0: yeah when they can't find her body like what clues them in is that she just kind of like collapses out the chimney and all of the reveals of like the bodies and the violence you know are all taking full advantage of the color of the 3d so that everything just kind of like pops out at you yeah um yeah it's it's very violent Um, and yeah, it's, it's when you're watching it, it's not complicated, Mm -hmm. right? It's just that there's a lot of extraneous characters so that they can die.
1: Yeah, exactly. I think the ape suit was
0: really good yes i think this is probably the best ape suit and the best ape acting we've seen for like the show up to this point
1: yeah his movement was really authentic for lack of a better word
0: yeah it's very convincing um it's kind of unfortunate because the ape stuff in this movie is so like old hat you know um if you compare this to the original mm-hmm. movie from 1932 um the stuff with the ape is like way less transgressive When Sultan takes Jeanette at the end, and instead of killing her, is, like, carrying her around, it's the same implicit thing as you get with, you know, King Kong and all these other, like, apes-capture-pretty-lady kind of movies, but it's not explicit the way it is in the original Murders in the Rue Morgue, right? Yeah. Where it's, like, explicitly, like, this is what this ape plans to do with these ladies, right? So it feels a lot less transgressive, and here in 1954, the like ape-carrying-the-lady-around thing is just, it's very old-fashioned.
1: Yeah, and I think the other thing that kind of makes it old-fashioned is the motive of Dr. Murray. Oh, interesting. It's kind of like the older man
0: love triangle. It is a little bit, but what I found interesting about Murray's motivation is the work that was put into really like making it clear that he's like a messed up psychotic, right? Yeah. That it's not just like jealousy, right? Where it's like, "Well, I have a boner and I'm old and you're young and hot, so I want sexy times, so I'm going to have to kill your boyfriend," right? It's like this whole big convoluted complicated thing with like his ex-wife and like his own weird like psychological theories. And that feels a lot more, like, modern to me. It also feels more, like, human. I mean, he's the mad scientist in this movie, but, like, he doesn't have the mad scientist thing of, like, they laughed at me when I told them that I had trained an ape to kill. But now...
1: (laughs) Yeah, actually, like, his theories are pretty accepted. Like, to the point where he's giving guest lectures.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, he's a brilliant psychologist, right? Yeah, so I actually really liked Carl Malden as Dr. Murray. Background info I gave on him, like, he's a very, very good actor, and this movie is clearly, like, slumming it a bit for him. (laughs) But, like, I think he's doing a really good job with the role, and doing a really good job of, like, making Murray both believably this, like, intellectual and believably this, like, murderous misogynist.
1: Yeah. Um, Steve Forrest as Dupont was fine.
0: Yeah, he's he's, him.
1: he's just a pretty boy.
0: He's just like a basic cardboard protagonist. He's just another one of those guys, right? Like he's just doing what the movie needs him to do and needs him to be. Same with Patricia Medina as Jeanette. Like I don't really think she was that special in that role. Like Her screams were good. Good screams. And you know, she has like a good amount of like intelligence in the role, but the script's not really giving her Anything to do. Yeah, so the two of them are sort of stuck in the same, like, two-dimensional male-female lead roles that we've kind of gotten used to Mm -hmm. in these movies.
1: I think the score was really good. Like, especially, like, the opening. It's very bombastic. Yeah. Um, And, obviously, the bell sounds, the ringly dingly, that's all in post, and it's done in a way that isn't annoying. It's a little overdone, but it's not like hurting my ears.
0: Yeah, I mean, in real life, never ever buy me a bracelet with bells on it that I can't take off.
1: Yeah, that, that's like a plot point. Like, well, not necessarily plot point, but it's explicitly said like, you can't take this bracelet off. It's on for life.
0: Yeah, it's meant to be like, oh, like, what a sign of your love or whatever.
1: And to me, I'm like handcuffs.
0: <laughs> well, you know, later we learn that the bells are for like the Pavlovian thing. But like at first when I hear like, oh yeah, this boyfriend gave his girlfriend a bracelet that she can't take off with bells on it, it makes me think of like, so that he can like monitor, I know where her, she is. Yeah, monitor her movements or whatever. <laughs> it's a little weird, but also that would be so annoying, like to live with that. Like I would go nuts if either like I had to wear that or even if just you wore that around the house all the time, like I would go nuts.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Um, Charles Dauphin plays Inspector Bernard mm-hmm. and I think he does a really good job of making somehow making Bernard like a likable enough character that we like enjoy watching scenes with him despite the fact that he's clearly an idiot. Yes. Like he's kind of a more serious toned down Inspector Clouseau. Like he's Clouseau without the like slapstick comedy elements, but he's still basically just as much of an idiot.
1: Yeah. I also like the sets um mm-hmm. especially like the German expressionist rooftops. Um, And I thought the cinematography and mise-en-scene were really good.
0: Oh, yeah. Especially
1: with the, like, aftermath of the murder.
0: Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, the 3D stuff
1: is pretty over the top here.
0: Um, But But
1: none of it feels shoehorned in.
0: Yeah, none of it's like the ping pong ball in House of Wax. I think the directing and the cinematography both do a lot of good work keeping, like, the pace and the excitement up uh, throughout the entire movie. Like, this is a fun Exciting spectacle movie, and yeah. the stuff where there's things coming right at you is just like part of the fun of the movie, yeah, and I think you can see that this movie was primarily intended as like a roller coaster ride as like a an amusement park you know kind of experience where you come in and you're there with your date and you scream at the stuff coming at the screen, and you like get all worked up and excited, right. Yeah. I think you can see that with the, like, level of gore.
1: Oh, absolutely. It's it's
0: all about kind of just, you know, spectacle, right? I mean, we've never really seen... At least I can't remember a previous film where we've seen, like, this amount of blood.
1: I can't either. Um, Honestly, like... (laughs) It's kind of funny, but I was thinking about Murders in the Zoo with how kind of shocked we were with some of the violence in that movie. Right. Um, I was thinking of that before we got to the zoo in this movie. <laughs> <laughs> but um, just like the willingness to show that.
0: Yeah, and it. but it feels like it's coming from a place of creating a spectacle.
1: Woo, look at this.
0: Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, With the emphasis on the gore and the, like, long list of, like, disposable women to get murdered, this really feels like a foreshadowing of, like, what horror movies become, right? Because that's what, like, 1980s horror movies particularly are just, like, a list of murder victims and a joy in depicting, like, increasingly gruesome and over-the-top methods of murder, Right?
1: Yeah, I think that's really apt. Kind of stepping away from this movie for a minute. I think horror has always been, like, a little bit about the spectacle. Um, When I was doing research for Mystery of the Wax Museum way back, I looked into the history of wax museums and how they would have, like, a section that was all gore. Right. And, like, look at this creepy shit. And it was always that spectacle thing. So I think spectacle has always played an element...
0: Of it so, oh, yeah, I mean, if you come back to like the traditional definition of the difference between like horror and terror as emotions, yeah, right, where like terror is the like you're in the dark and like is there something behind you, what's that creeping what's that what's that creeping up on behind you, oh oh no, right, whereas like horror is like. And then you turn the corner and there was an eviscerated body with a, sitting in a pool of its own blood, strangled by its own intestinal cord, like that kind of stuff, right? Yeah. And I think that's like what we're seeing this movie giving into more.
1: That being said, I don't think this is a horror movie, Ben.
0: Oh. Oh, I completely disagree.
1: Interesting.
0: Yeah, I think, like, okay, the screenplay to this movie is ludicrous. Yes. But, like, ultimately, I think everyone making this movie knew what kind of movie they were setting out to make. Anthony Caruso, for instance, playing Jacques, like, he knows that he's playing this, like, stock horror movie kind of character.
1: A little bit of a red herring character.
0: Yes. And even if it's less transgressive than the original, I think the focus on the murders and the focus on the shock and the focus on the, like... Whoa, there's a body! And, like, a focus on, like, the gorilla's coming right at you! And, like, the screaming and the, like, all of that stuff, I think, make this a horror movie. What do you think?
1: I thought it was more in the line of a grisly and violent police procedural. It certainly has
0: the police procedural (laughs) aspects of it.
1: I think the first half is, for the most part, that police procedural feeling. And then the second half, probably because we get to actually, like, meet our villain or, like, see the the Mm -hmm. villainous side of our villain, um, the second half
0: is a bit more into horror. I did appreciate that, for once, the, like, technologically obligated intermission actually served, like, a structural purpose. Yeah. And that there was, like, a definitive, like, act one, act two here where we're basically with the inspector's POV in act one and Marais' POV in act two. That said, that kind of, like, we're seeing it from the... You know, cop perspective and then from the villain perspective, structure is pretty common with police procedural movies like, um, you know, stuff based on the works of Thomas Harris and things like that, right? If you think about, like, Red Dragon, where we are following, like, Will Graham around as he's trying to catch the Tooth Fairy until, like, once he realizes the Tooth Fairy's Francis Dollarhide, then suddenly we get a bunch of scenes from Dollarhide's perspective explaining his backstory and what he's doing and why. So I I totally see where you're coming from on all of those aspects. I think the reason it doesn't ultimately feel like a police procedural to me might just be because, like, there's a mystery in this movie. Yeah. But it never feels like the audience is supposed to be solving the mystery. Because, you know, if there's something this movie has in common with the short story, it's that the mystery is absurd. That's true. <laughs> right? Like it's, and Bernard's an idiot. So like he, <laughs> he doesn't solve it, but I also don't blame him for not believing DuPont when DuPont's like an ape, the only logical explanation. And yeah. like, it feels like the, the focus is much more on like the grisly murders, but.
1: <sighs> it's tough. If you think about this compared to Silence of the Lambs, mm-hmm. which a lot of people have long debates about whether Silence of the Lambs is horror or thriller.
0: Right. And I I consider it to be thriller.
1: Yeah. And I think your point about, like, you're solving the crime along with the protagonist. Mm-hmm. Um, you get that in Silence of the Lambs. Mm-hmm. I think you, you, you're you very apt to notice that, like, in Phantom of the Rue Morgue, like, we're not really getting clues. Like, we we get some stuff here and there, but not really in the same way that we would be, like... Like, Dark Eyes of London, for example.
0: I think if you're already familiar with the Murders in the Room Borg short story, you can figure out the mystery, because you don't know that there's an ape until, like, the end of Act 1, right? When Dupont's like, it's an ape! And Bernard's like, bullshit! And then we cut to Act 2, and it's Mareg saying, like, here's my ape! And, you know, at that point you can put it together. So if you know the short story, you can kind of go, okay, every woman has a jangly bracelet, There's this psychologist who specializes in violence and trains animals to react to bells. I know that it's an ape, therefore I can put this together, right? But, like, if you don't know the short story and you don't know that it's an ape, I think it's a lot less possible to put together the pieces until part two tells you what's going on. Yeah. But... It's definitely tough because I definitely see your argument about why structurally this is like a police procedural thriller type movie. And like when you break down the story structure, it definitely has that feeling. But there's just something about the fact that it ultimately involves like a mad scientist and his trained gorilla.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I think this might be a case actually of... It being an offshoot, similar mm-hmm. to Dark Guys of London. Mm-hmm. Um, and part of why I'm thinking that is, like, the way you, you tied it to where 80s horror movies go.
0: Yeah, I think this is probably best understood as, like, a genre blend, right? In the same way that, like, you know, Ridley Scott's Alien is not sci-fi or horror, it's both, right? Yeah. It's a sci-fi horror film. I think this is easily understood as being, like, a police procedural horror movie. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Okay. Well, um, I don't have a range picked out, so I would love to hear what you were thinking for ranking.
0: So Sarah, I thought the spot that made sense to start looking in was number 73, where Murders in the Rue Morgue is sitting, the original. And I'm sort of on the fence about whether this is better or worse.
1: It's tough.
0: Because the original, as I have already said, is like way more transgressive and like feels a lot darker, but this movie's way more consistent in its tone, Mm -hmm. and, like, you can't say that it also doesn't, like, push boundaries. It's just not pushing, like, social moral boundaries. It's just pushing, like, what can I get away with showing on screen kind of boundaries, right?
1: Yeah. Okay.
0: So that's kind of where I started, but it's more of the midpoint of my range than, like, either the top or bottom. Because I wanted to give room for whether this was better or worse. Looking above Murders in the Rue Morgue, uh, I sort of tapped out at number fifty-five as my ceiling, which would be a spot below Phantom of the Convent, but above The Resuscitated Monster, <laughs> which is also like a very goofy roller coaster ride of a movie. Yeah. Looking below Murders of the Rue Morgue, I tapped out at number eighty-one, which would be a spot below the 1935 Student of Prague, but above the 1942 Ghost of Frankenstein, which is a largely boring, going-through-the-motions kind of movie.
1: Well, I think you're on the ball about considering Phantom of the Remorgue to be better than Murders in the Remorgue just because of the way it's a blend Mm. and not
0: disparate pieces
1: shoved together.
0: Sure. Right above Murders in the Remorgue we have stuff like Man from Planet X, Dr. X
1: X. I'm looking good. X.
0: What do you think about Phantom of the Morgue in comparison with any of these films?
1: Man from Planet X was a better blend of horror and X. Okay. <laughs> then Phantom in the Morgue being a blend. Because like Man from Planet X, you can easily go, yeah, that's sci-fi and horror. Right. Whereas this film... You know we were not as well set saying that it's horror and a
0: police procedural, sure. What about the fact though that above Man from Planet X we have Doctor X, which has like a comic relief main character
1: um I'm also thinking about like iconic value. mm Doctor. X is so iconic with its very, very distinctive look, Ray mm-hmm. in her screams.
0: Yeah, it's hard to make the argument that Phantom of the Remorgue is iconic when it's only available on DVD in Europe and seems to only be like streaming on Amazon Prime and Voodoo and like just isn't very available. So like not a lot of people have seen it. Mm-hmm. Which I do actually, to come back to that point, think is a shame. A shame. I do think this is an underrated lost gem.
1: It is quite fun. Like I think yeah. your description as a, a roller coaster is is on the ball. So it's on track.
0: Are you, <laughs> are you arguing for right above Murders in the Rue Morgue? Then I think so. Hmm. All right. I think I will allow it. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for being so gracious. <laughs> yes. Uh, so just edging out its predecessor, we have entering in at the new number seventy three, Phantom of the Rue Morgue, a title that is. Justified when DuPont says, I think it's an ape, and Bernard's like, an ape of your imagination. Like a like a phantom, a phantom ape in the Rue Morgue. <laughs> From 1954, directed by Roy Delruth.
1: If you would like to see this list, you can go to our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. There you can find links to the other episodes we've mentioned today, as well as our appeals box. If you would like to contest this or any other ranking, you can drop us a line through our Ask box on Tumblr. You can email us directly at ScreamScenePodcast at gmail.com, or you can reach out over Twitter at underscore ScreamScene.
0: ScreamScene updates every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, and wherever you like to listen to your podcasts by subscribing to our RSS feed. If you'd like to help the show out, you can leave us a rating or a review on the service that you listen to us on, or you can share the show over social media by sharing links to uh, the episodes, telling folks about us, or if you have the means, you can head over to patreon.com slash podcast, where you can become a patron of the night for as little as a dollar a month. Just like Jacob did. Right. Patrons at higher levels, $5 and $10, get access to bonus content that we put out throughout the year, and if we hit our first Patreon goal of $150 a month, we'll start covering horror-adjacent films uh, that could include a review of Silence of the Lambs, for instance. Yeah. So that's patreon.com slash podcast.
1: So what are we watching next week, Ben?
0: Next week, Sarah, we are watching the movie that the other half of the makers of house of wax produced in competition with this movie okay so it's the mad magician from columbia pictures produced by brian foy and written by crane wilbur and starring vincent price
1: cool do you think there will be any relation to the magician that no. we saw with paul Wigner? i
0: don't think so at all
1: okay i'm just curious just thinking
0: <laughs> yeah we'll uh we'll see i've never seen it before cool All right. Well, then we will see you next week, Creatures of the Night. Bye. Bye.